Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Brethren in Christ, praise to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is King. This is Timothy Flanders with The Meaning of Catholic. I'm joined today by Brandon McGinley. Brandon, how you doing, brother? I'm doing all right. How are you? Doing excellent. Happy to have you on the show. Brandon McGinley is a Catholic writer and speaker based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He worked in politics for several years, including pro-life and pro-family advocacy in the Pennsylvania Family Institute. Most recently, he was the editor of EWTN Publishing. His work has appeared in the Washington Post, First Things, Catholic Herald, Plow, and The Lamp among other venues. He speaks around the country on topics ranging from Catholic family life to friendship to church renewal. And he is a 210 graduate of Princeton University where he met his wife, Katie. They have five young children and live in the Pittsburgh neighborhood of Brookline. So we're going to be talking about his, actually not his newest book yet, but uh, <laughs> one of his newest books, The Prodigal Church, published by Sophia Press. You can find out more information below. So you have been writing since you're actually in Brandon the in the in the book it says you've been writing since your regular column in your college newspaper. So yeah. that was over a decade ago. So yeah. what made you want to write a book at this point after writing for 10 years or so? It's a good question. Yeah, you know, part of it was finally having the time, you know, I uh had been um <clears throat> I've been working for EWTN um, for five years. Um, started in 2014, I think, and um, and it was great. We had, it had uh, I was really proud of what we did at EWTN Publishing. We launched it. Um, it began when I came on in November of 20. I think yeah, November 2014, and um, we put out some great books by some great authors. And it was really uh, I was really honored to have been brought on board. That for me, was the culmination of of my desire for a long time to make working with words my full time occupation, rather than kind of slowly breaking away from politics. Um, and uh, but of course, that was a full time job, and I uh, didn't really have the time with other duties that I had, both family and professional, to write a book of my own. But the Prodigal Church ended up being the bringing together of lots of stuff I had been writing about on a smaller scale, um, lots of uh, essays and articles and so on, um, that all kind of were emerging from this same notion that if only the church acts as what she claims to be, that that is the linchpin of renewal. And it's it sounds maybe vague and and um, and nonspecific, but uh, 
but you have to start somewhere and the church needs to begin by recognizing that uh recognizing what she is recognizing that what she claims to be has implications for the everyday lives not just of the faithful but of priests and bishops um and that if we act with the confidence um that we haven't always seen uh, i suppose um institutionally but if we all act with the confidence in what the church says uh about herself and about grace about the sacraments then um that both historically and going forward is a uh is is is, is how you see the beginnings of something new something special excellent yes um now you your subtitle you have a subtitle it's the prodigal church restoring the catholic tradition in an age of deception yeah what do you mean by that subtitle <laughs> um you know i think the uh i i think the uh, we, we wanted to capture in the subtitle that uh that that the uh, that we're living in a time of special instability of special crisis um that we all recognize even if we can't always put our finger on exactly what it is um everyone maybe has their kind of pet notions of it but i think that we all recognize even as there is a great deal of prosperity and physical security in in the, in the united states and in the western world there's a sense of um certainly spiritual but also emotional and um political and economic precarity and insecurity and instability this feeling that that things are not right even if it's hard to quantify exactly what that means and uh, I think that we we live, broadly speaking, then in an age of both willful and um, and kind of uh, ambient deception. Um, yes, there's the willful deception of the secular world that um, kind of uh, intentionally obscures uh, the, the the truth, uh, the truths that 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 make it possible for us to live health, healthful and uh, spiritually healthful and, and integrated lives. But there's also a kind of ambient deception where we all have deceived ourselves into believing that the, uh, that uh, at least until recently, I, I think one of the main points in the book, you know, historically is that over the past few generations, we have the church both institutionally and in the lay faithful uh, have deceived ourselves into believing that being a faithful Catholic is more or less completely commensurate with being a good American citizen. Um, and uh, and so there's this kind of the, the sense that the crisis that we're living through now, the multivariant crisis of pandemics and politics and economics and so on, has kind of pulled back the curtain and uh, reminded us um, of the objective distinctiveness that we are called to as Catholics, um, and uh, and the effectiveness uh, of being that kind of light in a in a dark and deceiving world. Um, truth is always appealing. The light of truth is always appealing, but it's especially appealing in a time of darkness where the contrast is all the greater. On the other hand, we have to acknowledge that for people who have become completely accustomed to acclimated to the darkness the light of truth can also be frightening can be re repulsive not objectively but subjectively in the same way that anybody who's lived in a dark place might find the bright might, might find sunlight to be frightening um uh, harmful uh 
um, feel like it, 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 it's threatening. And so um, we're, 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 we're faced with an opportunity, but it requires boldness, an opportunity to bring the light of truth, both in terms of intellectual discourse, but also in terms of the witness of our lives to people who may be more open to it than they ever have been because the darkness of the world around us is so much more apparent, while at the same time, recognizing and being at, you know, somewhat at peace with the notion that some people are going to react more violently against that truth than they had than they would have in the past precisely due to that darkness yeah there was a line of the book i don't I, uh, i'm not finding it right now but um oh here it was um page 976 uh christ was willing to alienate every last one of his followers by delivering the hardest and strangest parts of his message with clarity are we yeah 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 i one of the one of the things i loved about your book brandon was what i saw is, as the primacy of grace that you yeah. seem to, throughout the whole text, you were emphasizing grace, grace, grace. And um, 183, you kind of sum it up. You say, grace slowly chips away at our fear of the cost of communion with our fellow man and with God. It works on our souls quietly, filing away the calluses of vice and cynicism, making our souls more open, more receptive, more tender. It makes it feel easy and natural to say yes to a friend's request for help and sometimes even more difficult to a friend's offer for help. So when we talk about renewal, there's a lot of people talking about renewal. How are we going to fix the church? Well, how are we going to deal right. with this situation? Uh, what would you say is the priority of grace in that yeah. conversation? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just it's not going to come from, you know, um, pristinely produced PowerPoint. I did, not mean to, I did not mean to do all that alliteration. That was a complete accident. <laughs> you just that's this um, on the fly, yeah, ladies and gentlemen. But no, it's not going to come from the best slides, you know, the best slide deck. It's not going to come from uh, pie charts and Venn diagrams and graphs and charts. Um, it's not that we ignore data. Data can help us. And we don't just go out into the void without a plan. Having a plan is good. But we have to look at the both both history both both christian history the history of sanctity the history of uh the history of of christian not just renewal but the christian of christian emergence in in the early uh, in the early centuries of the church and, and see that what we're seeing is people who are relying on grace people who are confident that grace can be transformative not just of themselves, but of their families and of their communities and ultimately of the entire world. There are two errors that we fall into um, and, and they, they end up feeding off of one another. One, of course, that is well known to, to conservative Catholics is that of a kind of uh, graceless idealism, a utopianism, that with the correct procedures and laws and regulations, we can kind of perfect society and create uh, a kind of heaven on earth. That's obviously... Um, that's obviously a ridiculous notion that's been, you know, disproved time and time again. Not that we can't improve things, but that kind of perfection is impossible by purely human means. But there's also a kind of anti-idealism, a kind of cold pragmatism that we often resort to in response to that, that to me is just as secular and just as graceless. That says that we can't actually improve things, that we can't, um, that we can't uh, overcome um uh or 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 be healed better better language be healed uh from our brokenness um that we must just act as if uh our brokenness cannot be healed and um and 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 
succumb to it precisely in assuming that it is um uh that 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 it is permanent and and there's no force in the world that can that can make it better um and that leads us to a kind of despair where we um find ourselves accepting social and economic and political injustices that we should not be because of some notion that, oh, anything you do to make it better is going to make it all worse. And you might as well just accept things as they are. It leads us to accept things about ourselves that we should allow, that we should um, allow God to, to heal. And I think most potently when it comes to the everyday experience of Catholics, we feel like family and community are realities that are kind of impervious to grace. Um, especially the community of friends or the community of the neighborhood um, that we see as being kind of, uh, like I said, almost outside the purview of grace, that uh, grace is only something that can heal us individually, but can't heal us communally. Um, and so this is, this has never been, this has never been the teaching of the church and it's never been the experience of Christians who have found themselves constantly healed, not just in, uh, healed of, uh, of, of, you know, brokenness, healed of their, of, of, of sin, not just in the sense of their, in, their individual particular souls, but in the sense of that grace going out into the family, going out into the community, making it possible to live, not just private uh, religious lives in a way that is more fulfilling um, due to uh, abandonment to, to divine providence, but a um, but uh, but whole communities again, beginning with the family, but going out to the extended to the extended family and to friends and ultimately to neighborhoods and parishes uh, who are also transformed because grace is by its very nature self effusive. It gives of itself. It is to use a to use a, a metaphor that's probably a bit too too close to home these days, it's viral. Uh, it's it's contagious, uh, of course, in a good way though. Um, and that's that's something I think we often forget about in in by when we layer when we layer the faith on top of um, a kind of uh, individualistic assumptions of our age. That's great. I, I like what you're saying about the extremes. That makes me think of the. Uh, the dictum from Dom Scupoli in uh, Spiritual Combat, he's saying, uh, we trust in God for everything and we distrust ourselves for, uh, we expect nothing out of ourselves, but everything from God, even to the point of through us doing yeah. things through grace. Yes, um, yes, exactly, exactly. And so, yeah, I, I love that. It's it's sort of a Pelagianism on the one hand, or it's a Jansenism, kind of like a Puritan yes. Calvinist notion on the other hand, Yes, which has very much affected the church for centuries, of course. Um now, you have an interesting note here, which is just a, a note for history, because you have this little author's note, because you're saying, oh, there's COVID-19 is breaking out <laughs> while, I'm, while I'm publishing this book. So, uh, you know, because speaking of grace, we just had a year where many forces inside and outside the church were saying that sacramental grace is a non-essential service for society. Yeah. So how do we overcome that now that, the like, as you said, the mask has been torn off? <laughs> I wrote this book in January and February of last year, and I submitted the full draft, uh, I believe, on the last day of February or something like that, right before everything happened. Um, and so I wrote that note because, you know, we knew the thing was going to be published in the summer. And so it needed something that acknowledged that something happened, <laughs> something <laughs> changed in the interim. So I wrote that in March, I believe. Um, and... Uh, you know, we've seen over the past year, going on year and a half now, um, 
we've seen that uh, we've seen how that our sacramental life is more fragile um, than maybe we realized um, in two senses, both in the genuine epidemiological sense that there are things that can happen that make it imprudent to gather together. On the other hand, more potently, we've learned that um, political forces uh, are in some places enthusiastically awaiting an opportunity to um, to make it more difficult to, to get together, uh, specifically for worship. I will say that living in Pennsylvania was actually better than many other places. The governor, for all of his um, for all of his faults, uh, always explicitly uh, ex explicitly exempted religious institutions from all of his mandates, um, which was uncommon in some places. Famously, you would have a, you would have California and other states where you know you could go to a strip club and not to mass. Um, and uh, Pennsylvania, it was not like that. So there were places. That, so I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to overstate my case here about the political situation. However, um, this is you know after the first few months of uncertainty, when things were when things became a little bit clear and the nature of the whole situation became a little bit clear. Yes, there was an opportunity that some took and some did not to say, okay, we've done our part. We have, we now understand the situation better and are able to make decisions that, um, that strike that balance between the natural and the supernatural in a more complete way, rather than completely capitulating to the temporal, to the worldly, to the natural. Um, and, um, and the, the implications of what has happened are going to be with us for a long time. Um, and, uh, the biggest thing that happened in that. And that we're finally seeing, we're seeing right now that we're on the other side of it now. At the very beginning, in fact, I don't even remember, I may have even mentioned this in the author's note, but it's something I wrote about and I thought about a lot, starting right when this all started, was that we were presented with an unprecedented opportunity to have a clean slate of our habits of everyday life. Um, in almost every single part of the country, except for maybe rural Alaska or something, everything stopped. Um, and... There are aspects of that that were good. I thought the pace, the slower pace of life, there was something to be said for that. There really, really was. Now, on the other hand, I don't want to get too deep into this, but when you slow down the pace of life in a dynamic, you know, modern economy, that also has serious economic implications. And that's, we are also shown that to have a, perhaps a more humane pace of life, uh, well, let me put it this way. We were shown that our economic dynamism, our economic prosperity is in many ways dependent on a arguably inhumane pace of life. Um, but, uh, but presenting from that question, the question was, what habits do we intentionally bring back into our lives and which do we intentionally allow to lapse to never come back to again? And, um, and I think that was, you're going to have one of those opportunities once every century. Um, most people will not have them certainly in the prime of life um, ever. And uh, and that's that was both good and bad. Obviously, it was it gave people who were passionate about their faith, passionate about worship, passionate about about liturgical prayer, um, an opportunity to pine for it in a way they'd never been made to before. 
And some real good could come out of that. I think did. I learned more about the mass. We go to the Latin mass parish in Pittsburgh. And if I learned more about the Latin mass during those few months um, than I did, than I have ever before or since, because it gave us an opportunity to pray the prayers of the mass at home using rubrics that we found. And obviously it's not the real thing, but I learned, I have, I had a St. Andrew missile from the 1940s and I learned how to flip through it and find the collects and everything. And then there's the second and the third collects and all that. And I learned more about the mass and the readings. I felt in some ways more liturgically in tune to the, to the liturgical calendar during those few months than I do during other times. Um, so there, there was some good opportunity for good. Let's say that there was opportunity for good. On the other hand, for those for whom mass was a pure habit and only a habit, not a habit that they were attached to in any sort of emotional, maybe somewhat spiritual way that um, for many people that the habit um, has been broken. And, and uh, regardless of what the bishop says about, you know, um, exemptions or, or whatever, um, will not come back. And that is that is not good, but we also should learn a lesson from that about just how many people um, mass is a pure habit for, and and really not much more. And that's that's very sad, but we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, there's when you in my diocese, they they've been merging dozens and dozens and dozens of parishes, and they bake in something like 30 or 40% attrition every time they do that. So if just having to go five more minutes to to another parish, or just being upset that the parish you've gone to, you know, for 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 however many years is closed, if that's enough to break you away from the body of Christ, then um, surely, you know, this is. And so I, I hope, and I think it has I don't want to be too optimistic. That's dangerous. But um, I think the uh, I think there's been a dose of realism that has that the church has gotten both sacramental, both spiritual and kind of demographic realism, recognizing that no going back to the way things were, whether in the 1950s or in 2019, um, and uh, that the uh, the grace of the sacraments cannot be allowed to be treated as one good among many um, on par with any other. Um, and I think that if there's another push for something like this, I think there will be more pushback next time. I That's that's just my impression based on what I've seen. But I, I, I think um, I think we're going to come out of this a bit with a bit thicker skin, maybe vis-a-vis um, -vis the political authority. Maybe again, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but that's just, it's just my impression. Okay. Well, yeah, time will tell as, as we continue with the uh, brave new world that we're living yeah. in and the new normal and everything. Uh, but you mentioned the uh, going back to 2019 or going back to the 1950s. The other thing I really like about your text is um, what you say on page, page five. You say, uh, a generation formed neither by enthusiasm for nor opposition to the Second Vatican Council is rising. Yeah. Because when we talk about renewal, usually it's two camps. You either need to do more Second Vatican Council yeah. and just do it more and springtime is coming around right around the riverbend or whatever. Yeah. And you also have, uh, well, just wipe the slate clean and go back to 1950 and then right. we'll be fine. 
Right. So you're saying do neither, basically, in right. this book, or you're right. kind of carving out a third way. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, we live in history. You know, we live in history, and history, and, 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 and in a particular way as Catholics, we live in history. We live as part of a tradition that is both rooted in the deepest, most profound truths of human nature and of and and of the supernatural, um, but but it is a but it is a, a rootedness. And this is something I said I think in the introduction it is a rootedness that is ordered to flourishing to growth, not in in a way that that, that never denies or or even chips away at the bedrock that those roots are attached to. But it is, but the way we, the way we live as Catholics, the way that the Church understands her, um, herself again, not in the fundamentals, but in how she interacts with the world around her, is necessarily developing. We can't act as if an ecumenical council didn't happen, and we also can't act as if nothing happened before that ecumenical council. Um, and so. Uh, and, and, and that's why I, I think, and, and this is why I think my generation, I'm 32, is vexing to lots of, of folks uh, of, of older generations who are deeply committed to either of the approaches that, that you laid out, that I lay out in the book, um, because kind of don't care. I mean, like, Second Vatican Council is very important. We want to treat it and read the documents, which are often quite lovely, with with all the respect we would read um, any other council. But it's not the flashpoint, not the, especially the emotional or political flashpoint for us, that it is for, you know, liberal Catholic professors who have dedicated their entire careers to to interpreting the council in a particular way and extending it and so on, whatever the other, whatever other metaphors you use. Um, and nor, uh, to be fair, are we generally, um, I said I go to the Latin mass community, but we aren't super invested in, um, in, a, in a kind of antiquarianism either. And that's a point I wanted to make clearly in the book, you know, is that if, if our, if, if, if restoring Catholic tradition, as it says on the title there, is about just reenacting the mass of 1962 in every perfect rubric from here until eternity, that's, that's a, uh, that's a Renaissance fair. That's not, that's not an act of living tradition. You go to different Latin mass communities in any city in the country right now, you'll see a slightly different mass and that's fine. You know, it doesn't have to be a slavish, re, you know, re, uh, reenactment of, um, of any particular rubrics. It's, of course, the it's 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 acting as if all that doesn't matter that you end up with, you know, balloons and clowns and things like that. Um, but uh, but there's also a sense in which um, we are living in a, 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 a tradition that is truly alive is one that is reinterpreting itself, that is uh, re-understanding itself, that is responding as a live organism does to its to its surroundings, uh, to its to its environment. Um, the disagreements that and, 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 and frankly, you know, there are a lot of of even, you know, quite liberal Catholic um, theologians and so on who basically understand things in that way. And the disagree, our disagreement comes down to how do we, how does the truth, how does the tradition react to this particular historical circumstance, and and that's where you end up with you know 
with, with things where things get off the rails, where, where, where people assume a humorous thing about all of this, a humorous thing about all this whole conversation. And it ties into one of the main points in the book is that it's precisely the liberal Catholic commentariat today that is making the moves that I that, that we often associate with 1950s style Catholicism, which is basically just assuming that the church um, is uh, that the uh, that the that the church and the 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 culture around us um, are uh, more or less compatible. And if only um, if only we uh, could allow ourselves to be more mainstream, to be more respectable, then um, then we will have made it. We will have kind of established ourselves as a mainstream force in, in the culture. This, I think, is the error that predates the Second Vatican Council that um, is actually you can see. And I'm not making it up. You know, it's, you see this language in Archbishop Sheen. You know, this is this is something that was recognized by Catholics at the time by prominent and not liberal Catholics at the time, um, that in in the in the post-war era, you had a um, you had a kind of Catholicism that was very invested in being mainstream, very very invested in being respectable. Um, bourgeois is the word that I I, I use, um, and this reaches its zenith in Kennedy, where it's like, oh, what's you know. We had become the wasps. I mean, what's waspier than running for president and winning? That's that. And, and, and we were happy with that. We're like, ah, we've made it. We're just like everybody else now. And and then and, and, and this this is where you get to where the, the, the question is now in Catholicism, among those who genuinely believe in something, you know, in in Catholic, in, in the tradition of the church uh, and, and, and who want to apply it in an authentic and genuine way, in a sincere way, which not everyone does. But the question is, should we just keep doing that? Should we just keep going along to get along? Should we just keep adapting? Should we just keep accommodating um, to, 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 to keep our mainstream, respectable bourgeois role? Um, so we're still, you know, accepted in all of the Tonyist clubs and um, and are um, and are completely comfortable with our place in American politics. Or do we look back at this and say, hmm maybe something more than just the second Vatican council has led us to where we are now. Um, maybe we became far too comfortable and have become so used to being comfortable over the course of decades, even generations that it's really, really hard to break free of that. And that also not to, not to do the, not to do the, you know, the, the, the modern secular bit where the, the younger generation knows better than the older, but there is a certain Liberty to being, in your 30s or 20s as a Catholic today, um, to be able to, A, be free of the hobgoblin of the Second Vatican Council. Again, not be free of it in terms of we don't have to deal with it, but in terms of it as a kind of hobgoblin. that, that Baggage. Is just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's infecting everybody's minds and, and, is, and, is, uh, and is dominating. Um, but also, we haven't had decades of being used, of getting used to being respectable and mainstream and, and whatever else. We almost every Catholic I know who's serious about the faith is my age, um, as either a convert or was away from the sacraments for an extended period. We chose to come into the church or to come back, um, knowing that it was not respectable, <laughs> knowing that it was not going to be something that was going to make it easier to live in the world. Um, 
knowing that it was not going to be compatible with many of the life choices that um, that other people consider to be completely normal and frankly essential for um, for respectable life. Obviously, contraception comes immediately to mind, but uh, economic choices, choices about what career paths we take. There's uh, there's all kinds of all kinds of things that uh, that we limit ourselves. Uh, now, and we knowingly limit ourselves and we aren't upset about it because we chose it. We knew it going in. This is not a good long-term situation for the church. At our best, the church is passing down the faith like DNA. It's not a voluntary association. It, we baptize our babies as babies before they have any will. Um, we entrust their spiritual well-being to parents and godparents, and it gets passed down in that way. But what we're doing now is rebuilding that from almost scratch. Um, and the current situation of the chosen Catholicism is a, it, first, it selects for zealotry, usually for better, sometimes for worse, because can, you can go whoop, off, the way or off the rails without, uh, without a baseline of community, especially, and I, not online community, real community. Yes, yes. Um, and, uh, and you, um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, so our, our, what we're doing now is rebuilding the foundations for a kind of faith that's passed down like DNA, that's passed down almost genetically. Um, and we're, we are responding to a situation that is not ideal. Like I said, the chosen voluntary church is not ideal, but um, we need to respond to that reality. And um and, uh, and, 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 and make choices that are practical. Every time I say words like practical or realistic or realistic or anything like that, I mean, in the natural and supernatural sense, nothing's more practical than grace. Nothing's more realistic than the sacraments. Okay. We do all that stuff. That is, that's the beginning. And that is the foundation from which you build the kind of communities where the faith is passed down in that almost genetic way. Yeah, you're really trying to build a, a not build a bridge, but uh, uh, get past this these two extremes that you just mentioned in the beginning. It, it is the the that sacramental uh, system of not really applying it to our lives, and then there's the pragmatism. <clears throat> and uh, you 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 sum up the 1950s by saying um, it's the the unquestioned Sunday mass attendance, borderline unsettling respect for the person of the priest regular participation in the parish social life and a home life completely empty of prayer. <laughs> I think that, uh, that says it all. I, 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 I like what you did with the 1950s. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think, you know, I didn't want to be unfair. I mean, it's not that there weren't seriously integrated Catholic family life going on. It's not like that wasn't, but I spoke to enough people who grew up in that time and I, you know, I'm 32 my uh, my parents are in their 60s um that i have some access to the way things were in that generation and um and and i've spoken to people outside my family who describe what i just what i wrote there you know um where it's to go back to the covid thing it's like it was habit it was a lot of habits a lot of habits of body and mind habits are good good habits are good good habits of body form us in good habits of mind and bad habits of body form us in bad habits of mind um 
I'm not going to go down the COVID road on that one, but, uh, but the, uh, um, but we, we can be, we're, we can be formed. We are formed um, in a good way by those habits, but if they lose their zest, if they lose that connection to the deeper reality uh, that they, uh, that they, uh, that they symbolize uh, or that they even affect, then we, um, then we, we, we aren't, it's not going to get passed down. It's not going to look like or feel like or be experienced as a real, genuine, living thing. Uh, it'll look like um, a Renaissance fair. It'll look like it's play acting. Largely. Yeah. And I like, once again, you're getting at a dispute was that was actually happening in the church in the 1940s among the theologians mm -hmm. concerning the Nouvelle Theologie. And it made me think of what, what you're saying. Uh, in terms of a living tradition, uh, not being slavishly just repeating for something from the past forever. Yeah. Um, it made me think of this, the famous essay from Gary Glucrange, where he criticizes the, criticizes the Nouvelle Théologie by a line where one of the theologians, Bouillard, said, a theology which is not current will be a false theology. So he's <laughs> saying, well, this is, just, this is just going straight to modernism. We're just right, going right, to go right, back right, into right, modernism yeah. and just involve the faith until it's current. Yeah. Um, so how do you answer the objection that one might raise to what you're saying and saying, yeah. well, we, we are going to be slavish about the Nicene Creed. We are going to repeat that right. every Sunday yes, forever. Yes, absolutely. Like, yeah. So how do you, yeah. how do you explicate being that living tradition and responding in grace? And, and one thing you say in the text is talking about innovation, yeah. just kind of a swear word to, you know, certain saints back in the day, you know what I mean? Right. Oh, so, I uh, so how do you, how do you answer that objection and, and really explicate that? Uh, full more fully to answer those objections. Yeah, you know that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I mean, the the obvious thing to say is um, is that there's simply a difference between those things that are permanent and those things that are um, those things that are contingent. Um, now, um, and we can become so attached to the contingent things that we lose sight of of what is genuinely permanent. Um, but that's still kind of vague. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that um, I think that we need to be able to look historically also at what changed and what was allowed to change, um, because not to do the whole golden mean thing again. But on the one hand, you have this historical perspective where. Um, where everything has always been exactly the same way and the Tridentine right is exactly the same way it was in the first century or whatever, which yes. obviously is not true. Um, or the mass of all ages, it's a beautiful line, but you know, yeah, you, you can get a little over, over the top. I mean, we, we still have to be honest about what the just history was. Um, and at the same time, you have this, everything is up in the air idea where if you know, if you, you you'll find some document from some bishop in some century in some podunk town in, you know, in Germany or something that will say, oh, well, you see, they weren't totally on board with transubstantiation. It's like, well, there have been idiot bishops forever. I mean, you know, I, it's just, um, I, I think the, I think the, I don't, I don't have, I don't have like a good formula that's going to, it's going to be like, these are the things that, that you have to you do the same and same forever and ever, other than just to say the, the fundamental truths of the faith, the fundamental dogmas of the faith. Um, but I think that in our, we, we need to recover 
a it, this this is this is intention with what I just said about everything being chosen about but the fact that we we that that the faith is now in this day and age in this country a chosen thing, um. But we need to recover a f that feeling of um that that peaceful Catholic feeling of living within the history of church tradition, and what I mean by that is that um what we are living through now while extraordinary in many respects is not is 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 not the biggest crisis in 2000 years it is a crisis in many many respects but it is not the biggest crisis in 2000 years um the uh um the uh the there's a there's a perspective an eternal both forwards and backwards perspective that I, I think um, is lost when you're when in the situation that we're in now in the modern Catholic West, where the faith is largely a voluntary and chosen thing, um, because we aren't settled in it. We aren't. We don't have that. We don't have that. Um, that comfort in it um as if it's the most natural thing in the world it's it feels that's that's part of growing in holiness i'm convinced you know is is feeling um not just feeling that feeling a peace about um about being catholic feeling peace about you don't have to be happy with every bishop's pronouncement or 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 with or with the state of the institutional church or whatever but um but i think there's there's a a a sense of um peace i keep coming back to peace of um trust in providence um that we are all that we are part of a uh, a 2000 year in history of the church and of an eternal history and future um in our relationship with the lord that um that should give us a um an understanding that it's just in the nature of a living institution that um that that uh that it is responsive that it is responsive to stimuli yeah. um and uh um and at the same time if it is so responsive that it tears out its own roots, then of course it dies like any institution does, but we are assured um, that that will not happen. Uh, we can agitate to make sure that, uh, to, to make sure those roots stay as strong as they can, but historically that's you know, not really the role of the laity um we don't have to do the pay pray and obey thing uh precisely uh we can go a little bit beyond that but i think there's um i think i mentioned in the book one of my one of the priests actually at our latin mass parish gave a homily where he said that the um we the church church going laity will not be judged on the administration of the church at the end of time and even your everyday parish priest is not going to be judged on the administration of the institutional church at the end of time um the bishops and uh and so on will um and so it's not that i think there's uh i think that when we when 
when we obsess over whether every little thing that happens in Rome, or even every big thing that happens in Rome or in our own chancery offices is going to be the thread that's pulled that unravels the entire thing. Um, that is a recipe for the opposite of peace, yes. both in our souls and in our parishes and in the wider church. Uh, and in the and in the witness that we give to those who are not Catholic. Um, what will draw people in is a peaceful confidence that even as there are many things, that are not as they should be in the church, um, that uh, we still do what we do without interruption. We still pray the rosary with our family and we don't pray it for the, for the um, conversion of the Pope, <laughs> you know, in the sense that some people may, you can, can the sense that you the conversion that we're all called to sure, but you know, in that kind of passive aggressive sense, you know, no, um, we uh we we go to mass we try to integrate more aspects of daily prayer into our family's life um we make concrete decisions in our everyday lives about things as big as where we live in order to create the possibility of a real catholic community we do that kind of thing that's what we do uh we don't um get heart palpitations every time there's a new piece of um, gossip uh, from um, from Rome and yes. uh, and 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 this is a roundabout way of saying that the the way that we know I think one of the ways that one of the biggest ways that we as the laity know what are the kind of changes what are the kind of quote innovations that are genuinely responsive to tradition and those that are not has to do with um with what is compatible with a um with living in that piece with what is compatible with um uh with with integrated and um, Catholic families and communities that recognize by virtue of living as far as we can grace-filled lives that we recognize the difference. Um, and, uh, and also recognize that um, as much as the church is a top-down institution, the habits that we form in our own families um, also trickle up because at the end of the day, um, the bishops uh, are looking at a flock that is getting smaller and smaller. And, um, and the, the little, even the little places, the little neighborhoods, the little parishes where things are not shrinking, where there's clear vitality, clear peace, uh, clear, um, uh, a clear, clearly bold faith um, that will, th those will be proofs of concept for things that will become, that will be instituted at a wider scale. I'm convinced of it. I really am. Like, I, I think that I know, especially among, you know, more traditionalist Catholics, a group among which, you know, I, I am, I'm a, a, 
a young member, so I do not try to tell them their business too much. But I, I think um, there's, there's obviously a lot of skepticism, a lot of cynicism that it is precisely the dynamism of these communities that will be off-putting to prelates. It's precisely the fact that these that these that that during the pandemic these parishes were growing. Um, that's going to be that there, that's going to be that there's going to be a backlash. In some places, it's going to happen because there are there are there are people who really do think like that, who really do, who would rather the church, I, I, I do not say this lightly, but I, there are absolutely people in the church who would rather the church be kind of desiccated husk um, than, than, than embrace, you know, anything that is redolent of the, of the pre-Vatican II era. Um, but for those who are the majority who do not feel that way, it will become undeniable where the um, where the action is, where the vitality is, where the vocations are coming from, where the money's coming from, where um, where there is. And and here I want to emphasize again, and this is you know where where there is a, a feeling of of um, of a peaceful spirituality, one that is growing but not growing in order to own the libs or growing in order to own anybody other than Satan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, and, uh, and, and that's not just going to be trad parishes. I don't want to, I don't want to be parochial about it. I think it's, I think it's in, it's going to be in neighborhoods. It's going to be in families. I, I can think of one family here um, who I knew was acquaintances with growing up. And then, you know, I went off to college, didn't know them, you know, barely they just knew their name. They, they lived, they you know, lived in the same borough I grew up in. They have like three or four priests among the kids that they had that you, you can't go anywhere without seeing this family. It's one family. And they're like, you know, I, I'm only exaggerating a little bit. No, excuse me. My, uh, there we go. No, um, my, oh, you're good. Um, but, uh, one family that provides like a non-trivial number of the of the priests who serve this city. We have a neighborhood here with a dozen, 15 young Catholic families who have, when you add it all up, something like 50 or 60 kids, 10 and under. This is this neighborhood is going to provide there's a good chance it can provide like 10 or 15 or 20 percent of the priests of this entire diocese in the coming generation. Um, that is, you, you can't ignore that. You can't ignore that kind of thing. So I think that, you know, as much as we want to play politics and agitate and go online and, uh, and, you know, and write, you know, nasty comments on Twitter or whatever, um, <laughs> hair's all over the place, but, um, <laughs> um, but, uh, what's going to actually have an impact both practically and spiritually, because these two are fundamentally the same thing is living lives informed by grace, allowing ourselves to be transformed by grace, allowing our families and communities to be so transformed um, and making those little everyday decisions of trust in God, but trust in our fellow Catholics, trust in our fellow parishioners, trust in our uh, trust in our neighbors that allow us to build up the kind of communities that make it um, that uh, that will it will outlast spiritual and political and economic and social upheaval. Yeah. I, I want to talk about building communities. It's really the heart of your book. Um, <clears throat> but I, I remember this definition you had of living 
tradition, page three, you say a living faith tradition is one that is both deeply rooted and responsive to the world around it, both anchored in timeless truths and precisely due to the confidence that comes from that anchoring, eager to innovate. So I love what you're saying about the going back and forward at the same time. Yeah, I think yeah. that really sum, sums it up. But this is this is what this is probably my favorite section of this book is when you when you said this. This is page 172. From the time of Christ and long before until very recently, the nuclear household was not expected to be isolated or self-sufficient. The emerging dominance of the nuclear family during the 20th century was part of the process of social fragmentation. The retreat of the nuclear household behind its suburban picket fence wasn't wasn't the preservation of a communal ethic, but a key factor in its destruction. So I love this because Catholics talk all about the family and we're all about the family. And that's great. Absolutely. We should be all about the family. But we're at the point where Catholic families are isolated in their little nuclear cells that are very in various places. They drive an hour to get to the Latin mass or whatever, you know, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's like you said, you sell it elsewhere in the book. It's not sustainable. It's not going to sustain. Our children are going to have a hard time getting that faith passed down to them. Um, so let's talk about practically how do we build community? Now, this is often talked about in a rural sense. Yes. Go off and make a family farm. That's great. I'm all about that, too. But yeah. you are making it in a urban setting. Right. So tell us about um, let's let's just talk practically. Can you can you give us like here's five things you need to do practically speaking to build Catholic community? Go. <laughs> I don't know if I'll do exactly five, but I'll give you a few <laughs> riffs. I'll, I'll do. I'll do. I'll do. do I'll some do riffs. That's fine. Um, okay. First of all, um, put yourself in a position to meet other Catholics. Okay. Um, open up to people at your parish. Allow yourself. Allow. Allow others to open up to you. Accept. Say yes to people. Okay. That's what. There's, it's one of these things, there's no PowerPoint presentation. It's not, oh, if you do, you know, there's no, I don't have like community in a box. I don't have, uh, you know, you know, you know, the, this, you know, one great trick to, to forming a Catholic community, but you, um, but for us, it was, you know, I'm, I'm not the most outgoing person in the world. I usually need someone to kind of like mediate between me and other, and then I, then I, then I, then I can open up. Um, and uh, so we, but for us, it was, it was not so much inviting people in, but was allowing others to invite us in to their lives. Um, so, you know, some people who we met, I mentioned in the book um, uh, at our, at a former parish that we attended, there was a young adult um, group thing. We went from time to time, they invited us over, um, or I guess it was the, they were just dating at that point. They now have four kids and we're the god we shared god children but at this point they weren't even married they weren't even engaged actually i remember when they got engaged in any event um you know the girlfriend of the group of the, of the pair of the couple had a had us over for like a gingerbread house make i don't even like gingerbread houses but we went but it's the kind of thing where i was not and i think this is something that's very typical of my generation i was not raised in a home where guests came over very often um part of it is just suburbia issues <laughs> um but part of it was um i think this is again very i don't i don't mean to say this to throw anyone in my family under the bus i think it was very very common that generation um a sense that if the house was not was, having people over is extremely stressful because the house needed to be in 
museum-like condition. And being invited into someone else's home that was not in museum-like condition was a, was helped me to break down a lot of those hangups. Um, and now we, you know, have people over all the time in a house that is extremely far from museum-like conditions, uh, having five children under eight. Um, and, uh, and, um, it's breaking down those barriers of, um, fear of vulnerability, of fear of intimacy, fear of imperfection. Um, that's the work of grace. And we cooperate, we cooperate with that by making concrete decisions, like accepting and offering invitations of hospitality. Um, I don't know if I said this exactly in the book, but one of my little pet, my little lines that I use is um, letting someone into your messy house is one small step to letting someone into your messy soul. Um, and, uh, and that it, allowing people to see, you know, it's not that you're like, let the hamster run amok and, you know, <laughs> allow, you know, and just have, you know, dirty underwear on the floor or whatever but you know but but recognizing that part of living together is seeing the way people live um that's and it's it's tautological but it's true um and so uh accepting and uh, offering people opportunities to say yes to you and saying yes to others in terms of hospitality and invitations simply to get to know other people um that's 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 the only way it can begin. You can't, there's no, there's no other way that I can think of. There's no other trick to beginning to form a group of friends than, than that. Um, and community emerges out of friendship. And that's the other thing. Community does not emerge out of nothing. Community does not emerge out of a contract. Okay. Community does not, uh, you, you don't, you know, you don't need to, you don't all get together and, you know, prick your fingers and write your names in blood in some document um, that, and that's, and all, now we're all joined together and we're not going to fight. And we're going to be peaceful and live together in perfect harmony forever and ever. Like that, that's just, that's not how it works. You, it takes years to build up the kind of trust for somebody to say, I'm going to move. I'm going to uproot my my family and move them to a neighborhood to be with other people. You have, I mean, that, that's a huge thing. And some things happen with us, with people who we knew, which is always even bigger than uprooting. Well, we know one family who uprooted from another city and moved to our neighborhood. At least one. Um, but some ways more extraordinary were the folks who uprooted from like five minutes away just to be within walking distance. So instead of being a five or six minute drive away, they're now a five or six minute walk away, okay? So A, um, say say yes to offers of hospitality and offer hospitality, okay? That's how you get used to it. It's how you get used to being vulnerable in your surroundings and being vulnerable um, in your spirituality, being able to talk about things that are very hard to talk about, that we are trained not to want to talk about. Uh, like our faith lives, like our prayer lives. I, even with people who I know, I still kind of gag on talking about it a little bit, but I, but, but the only way to get to the point where you're comfortable talking about it is by allowing grace to knock off that, those kind of plaques of, of, of fear and of, uh, of, um, and of insecurity. Um, so there's that. And then make concrete decisions about how you order your life to make community possible. It's not just going to happen. It's not just you're not you're not you're gonna have you're gonna have to make changes. You're gonna have to you're gonna have to 
um, except that there are going to be costs, um, but that the but that the benefits will be greater. It's not it's it's costly in, in time and effort and money to move. Um, it's costly to um, it could be costly, very costly to pass up a promotion that would take you to Colorado Springs or something like that, you know, um, to pass up professional opportunities. But the good of of being of of growing together, um, the good of of um, of uh, of growing in that kind of spiritual intimacy is is and especially for the kids is is greater than than just about any you know windfall that you can imagine. Um, I cannot I I cannot stress enough. Hey, my oldest is seven. She just had her first Holy Communion. We're still very early in this process. Maybe it's all going to fall apart someday. God, you know, God forbid. But as far as I can tell, um, in a world of in a world of isolate, a world of children who are who are isolated in their homes and families, and who not so much in Pittsburgh, but a little bit in Pittsburgh, and definitely in other cities, are you know won't be seen in public without wearing a mask on their face. Um, and don't in end of children who are four or five, six years old, who have maybe never seen another child's lips move um, and, and articulate words. Uh, there's just no, no, um, there's no substitute for having a group of, of kids who know one another, and I can say with confidence, love one another as if they were all brothers and sisters uh, or cousins at least, um, uh, who can walk or bike to each other's houses and who um, pray together um, regularly, uh, who expect and will not be surprised when they're visiting someone's house and they're invited to pray the rosary. In fact, they might even suggest it or remind us if we've forgotten. Um, you know, uh, there's just, uh, there's no, like I said, there's no substitute for it. And, um, and that I suppose is another part of it is just trusting that the good that comes from, from friendship is worth the cost is worth the risk. I don't need to tell you that we live in an extremely even more than I realized, risk averse world. <laughs> um, and not just health wise, uh, although that was made very clear, um, but emotionally, even more so emotionally and spiritually. Um, there's nothing that is more fearful to uh, a person who's to an, to an isolated individual to an, an atomic, you know, individual in modern liberal secular world, uh, there's nothing more frightening than being rejected, um, than exposing something imperfect about oneself and proving oneself to be unlovable. Um, because there's no, there's so little trust. There's so little in terms of integrated families and friendships where um, where that kind of vulnerability is practiced. Um, and, uh, and so one of the best things that we can do, this isn't necessarily a practical step, but just an encouragement. One of the best things that we can do is demonstrate that it's possible for our 
flaws and our brokenness to be exposed to others and still be loved, not just by blood relations, kind of are forced into it, but by people who we invite into our lives and are in turn invited into their lives. That I think is one of the most beautiful things that we can do to witness to the truth of the gospel. Um, because that kind of thing, especially in a world as risk averse and vulnerability fearful as ours, um, that is so obviously a work of grace. So when, we, when someone says, how do you do it? You can say, you'll make concrete decisions to live together, blah, blah, like I just said. Um, that's part of it, but that's all responsive to grace. You don't get there. You don't get to the point where you're uprooting your family to move five minutes away without some sort of a supernatural notion that there is an intangible good here and that you are responding. You're responding to inspiration, an inspiration that is not explicable by purely rational or, or better um, worldly, you know, worldly reasons. Um, so... So right. say, say yes, offer opportunities to say yes to hospitality, um, make concrete decisions about where you live um, and um, pray together. Don't hesitate to ask for prayers. Um, so that's a few things I've made. Four uh, fingers that's great. That's great. Um, if anybody wants to ask any questions of Brandon, please hit those in the chat. Um, Brandon, would you say that living together in a, community as Catholics within walking distance of your Catholic neighbors, would you say that that's the normal way that Catholics should be organizing? Um, yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> but with several caveats, well, at least a few, one is that it's not possible for a lot of people or at the very least, the barriers are higher than they were for me. Economically, there are places where in Pittsburgh, in our neighborhood, which is still a pretty working slash middle class neighborhood, it was not a financial hardship for it's not a financial hardship for a person of average means to move into this neighborhood. Um, there are parts of this country uh, where where that's just not the case about anywhere that is a desirable place to live, even, you know, borderline desirable place to live. Um, and so there are, there are structural things that make this vision harder than it should be. So there's that. Um, and two, um, another structural thing is the built environment isn't always made for it. The suburbs are not made for this. The suburbs are not made for this with, with exceptions. There are not that like everything that's not within city limits is bad, but the suburbs are generally not made for this kind of thing. They're made for cars. Um, they're, um, rarely made for anything beyond cars. Uh, if you have a suburb that is dense, uh, relatively dense and has sidewalks and so on, yeah, it could work there, but I, it's, it's somewhere where, where, where you need to drive everywhere, it's not gonna work. Um, I think small towns and rural life is, is definitely another, another thing that people could be drawn to. Um, and, uh, and, um, and that could be kind of like this or kind of not, you know, um, you know, I think the ideal, we, we know some people in, in Pittsburgh who, who have the, um, ambition to 
to to do the agricultural life, and there would like to be several families um, joining in on it. And I, I, that's not that's not that's not me. Um, <laughs> um, definitely not called to that. Uh, but I love that people are. And so my yes to your question is with the other caveat that not everybody is called to the exact same thing. Of course, some people are going to be called to a more isolated way of living. Even though I don't think that that's ideal. I don't think that I don't think that that's what we should all be aiming for. Some people will thrive that way, and that's fine. Uh, I don't mean to, to disparage that. Um, but um, I think all things being equal, if there is an opportunity to live within walking distance of your fellow Catholics, walking or biking distance or scootering distance or whatever of your fellow Catholics, um, ideally, and this is especially hard um, with the state of liturgy, uh, and in place, and even more importantly, even more importantly than not to, I don't want to be too cranky, uh, even more importantly in Pittsburgh, certainly in, in places like Pittsburgh where parishes are um, shrinking and, um, being closed left and right. Um, it's, it's hard to commit to a walkable community with a walkable church. That's the, that's the dream. We have a parish that we that is within walking distance of us but it may or may not be on the chopping block it's liturgically so so and uh we found stability in the latin mass parish it's an 18 minute drive away and and we spend a lot of time in that neighborhood because of the parish over there so we you know multiple homes and and we have we do do things at this at this neighborhood parish too which is which is good there's there's not a wall of separation um but um but yeah i just there's no substitute for that kind of proximity um, um, there, there just, there isn't, it, 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 um, it, it makes it so much easier to respond to the grace that is trying to knock down our walls of fear and separation, um, between our fellow men. Excellent. Yeah. I, I, I tend to agree with you. This is, this is really the normal way that people organize and yeah. being able to, uh, as you pointed out in the book at one point, and you alluded to here, is that our cities and our communities are already built, uh, physically built, architecturally, and the planning of the cities, they're, they're planned against this, which makes it physically more difficult. Yeah. But I was reminded of actually of the, the painting that you chose for your other book, which we'll, <laughs> we'll yes. discuss, but the, the painting itself... Uh, it's not going to really come through very well on the, but uh, it's a, yeah. it looks like a Corpus Christi procession. It's a, it's a rogation and, day. Okay, rogation day. Perfect. Mm -hmm. So in the rogation procession, you have all, you have little children, uh, you have the whole community processing, you have the people in the fields kneeling yeah. down as the procession goes by, you have the women carrying Mary all in white. Um, yep. Because I think, as you alluded to just now, uh, you know, when the children are, you have your, your, Catholic gang of friends, a positive gang influence, I hope. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And the, but the positive is we're, we're going to pray the rosary now, whatever. Yeah. But it, it sort of naturally becomes this public display yes. of uh, beseeching the church triumphant, as you say in the book. Yeah. Um, can you speak more about children and passing down the faith of children? What is the influence of this, this community life, this public display of faith? How does that affect the children? It's so much... So, as I said, my generation is largely a chosen Catholicism. We largely fell away and came back. I was raised Catholic. I was not very interested in it from late middle school through high school and into college. Came back to the sacraments in college. And the rest is history. 
most of our friends are either, like I said, converts or at some point uh, fell away. Um, one of the nice things about this is that they all have really interesting stories, um, which is good because I, I think that this, this is a side point, but I think that Catholics can sometimes seem too um, staid and boring, but the, the actual lives, and this goes, this is, this is a, actually, a, this is actually a Catholic trope that we tend to have very colorful stories. <laughs> um, something about, something about the way the church pulls you back in, allows the, I don't know, it, it, Catholics have a really, um, we tend to have a lot of really interesting stories because um, I think, uh, you know why, you know why it is? Uh, this is a, a total aside. It's because of confession. It's because of it's because of the confidence of sacramental confession that the church draws in lots of colorful characters who have had really uh, colorful lives and often, you know, not so good lives. Um, and the confidence um, that confession uh, heals and 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 allows you to um, continue to be healed. I think that I think that has a lot to do with why Catholic culture is often so colorful. But okay, I, I digress. Um, we have the chosen Catholicism um, because my generation largely fell away and came back. the 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 faith did not feel like a natural part of life. I think for I think that's a fair statement about my life and about a lot of people's lives. Did not feel like. It felt like an add-on, like something was layered on top of of normal. You have normal people life that we lead, and then we do this other thing too. Um, and we sometimes do it, and we sometimes don't. Most of the time we do it, but sometimes we don't. Um, and uh, and I don't say that again in a disparaging way. I think that was that's why I wrote the book in many respects because I think that's very very common generationally that it was like all you have to do is be a good American and you'll be a good Catholic and it all works together. And it's not really an integrated part of every, of, of your being of your, like a soul deep kind of thing for kids. They need to see that this is in a, a naturally integrated part of everything that we do. And we need to talk about, we talk about Jesus as if he is in the room because he is uh, in a sense. Um, certainly at mass, we say there's Jesus. Not just on the cross, but you know, at the at the at the elevation and the consecration and so on. Um, we uh, we 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 integrate catechesis into everyday life, not as a school, not as like a course in school, but as as part of answers to everyday questions. Um, obviously life and death are classic ones. Kids are always asking life and death questions. And the, the temptation is just to punt it because, oh, well, you yeah. know, they, they aren't, they aren't old enough yet. What, what classic, when, when, when are we, when are we going to die? Oh, oh, only God knows, only God and his providence knows. And if, and if, and if, and here's the one you want, want to wait for the kids are ready for, especially once they're getting to first communion, first confession age. And that's why you need to always be ready. <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> go to confession. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, memento mori. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so talking about the faith as if it's the most normal and natural thing in the world, that does not come naturally to me because that's just not how I was. And some of it's my personality, I think, but some of it also just I was not formed in those habits. Um, and so I think I say in the book, like I still in um, less and less so, but I still certainly in private conversation will kind of like choke on talking about the 
talking about Jesus Christ, you know, I'll, I might, you know, say the Lord or something like that, but just like, it still feels like aggressive or weird or like, you know, Oh, I'm one of those people who talks about Jesus all the time, you know, writing, I can write about Jesus all the time. That's, that's easy, <laughs> but actually saying it to, and, 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 um, and so, um, I think I think a way for kids not to have that experience is to talk about Jesus with them. <laughs> yeah. Um, talk about Mary with them. Talk about the saints. Celebrate their celebrate their saint day. Celebrate um, celebrate their baptism days. Things like that that make it completely natural. Now it's one thing if you do that as just your family, and then the rest of their experience in the world is not that way. Um, now, in some ways, that's gonna, always going to be that way. You're not, you cannot completely ha- keep them inside. And that's another problem that can happen when it's purely the isolated family, of course, is that you just lock it down like a bunker, you know. And that's um, at a certain point, the bunker, you're going to get out of the bunker. And and it, I not there are families who have lived that more isolated life, and it does work. I, I don't want to suggest that you're always going to end up always going to end badly. But um, I, I, I suspect a lot of kids will end up feeling lied to. Um as if, you know, as if they're, they're, you know, feel like the, 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 the apparent normalcy of what they were was just not normal and not normal in a good way in many respects, but I think it'll, having people around you who are doing the same thing allows for um, churn of ideas and advice and other kids who are doing the same thing. So it, it is more natural. It is more normal. So it's not just us against the world. It's us and this entire group against the world, but it's less pungent. It's a less serious kind of martial kind of, you know, military style contrast whenever um, whenever it's lived organically among several other families, dozens ideally of other families in your parish or in your neighborhood, um, who, um, who are doing the same kind of thing. And, uh, and you can say with a real, with real honesty, this is normal and natural and it can be sustainably so because we have right here the germ of a multi-generational community. Um, and uh, obviously the family can't be a multi-generational community unto itself. The nuclear family cannot be a multi-generational community unto itself. It can be in the sense of the extent a family can live with you in the house, but it can't go out beyond that. Um, you need other people, obviously. Um, and so having a community of Catholic families demonstrates that it is not just desirable, not that it is possible. It opens up possibilities for what kids can imagine Catholic life can be not just locking down your family, but, um, but being part of a community through time, not just a community right now, but a community through time that can become sustainable. Um, and so, uh, and so they see other kids who are doing the same thing. They see other kids who are have my, my six-year-old sees the nine and 10-year-old boys who he looks up to serving at mass. And they aren't just strangers kids. It's not just some other boy, which is, which would be good enough. But the, the boy who he sees on a weekly basis, either coming over the house or over at his house. And he sees that this 10-year-old boy is, 
is pious, but also strong, also a great climber, also throws the ball well, also does all that stuff well. He's smart, you know, in the way that six-year-old boys always look up to 10-year-old boys. But not just as an altar boy, as a fully lived, you know, as a fully formed uh, human being um, who uh, who is, um, you know, who is in living an integrated life, growing in all the ways that a child should grow, not just intellectually, which is what we focus on almost exclusively today, yeah. um, but physically, athletically, and of course, most importantly of all, spiritually. And so this builds, this builds up and, and it allows grace. I say grace is self-effusive. Grace goes out of itself naturally. It wants to spread. The life of Christ, the life of the, the the divine life by its very nature goes out. It spreads. That's that's what that's what God does. And this allows that to happen. So you end up with this matrix of relationships and of sacramental grace. Godparent relationships. I couldn't even tell you the complexity of the godparent relationships in this neighborhood. Um so many intertwining if god forbid you know one set of parents you know dies in a plane crash or something i don't know they're gonna divvy up the kids i don't know how it's gonna work <laughs> but everyone's covered you know? yeah. <laughs> uh, i'm joking a little bit but you know that that's that's the kind of uh that's the kind of thing that um that is only possible whenever people are living together and growing in trust together so much trust you say if we die I trust the, the spiritual well-being of my child to you. And not just in the way that we're not handing out, you know, we're not handing out godparents like it's, a, you know, like it's a, 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 a participation prize or something like that. You know, yeah. that, that's 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 easy to do. And it's something that, um, you know, is uh, that well, we had to grow in. I'll just put it that way. But um you know, it's, uh, um, it's, uh, that, that's the kind of thing that you end up with. I just think it was like a matrix, a web of grace that builds everybody up. And then you see it in tangible things like someone lost their job and you're not only bringing them, you know, food or whatever, not food, but you know, food, somewhat the better example, someone, um, someone, uh, has a baby. It's not only you're just bringing them food, but if someone falls on hard times financially, like there's an openness to talk about that kind of thing that is not present in um, in the wider world, certainly. And it takes years and years of building up trust to be able to have those kind of conversations. So, yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, we, we have a great question that's relevant also to the effect on children. And it's a, a big problem, I think. Uh, Richard DeClue, um, shout out to Dr. DeClue. Uh, he says... Any advice on how to focus meetings of Catholics on positive aspects of our faith as opposed to just negativity? Yeah. I often find the conversations devolve to problems only. Obviously, yeah. we've got a lot of problems. Yes, a lot of problems. And they're fun to talk about. I mean, you, you, know, you, get, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, it's true. I mean, you know, you it's there's a reason these conversations, the conversations about lots of things always, you know, often devolve into what all the negatives of things are, because it's fun to criticize. It, you can you can you can make jokes. You can uh, you can. Um, commiserate uh, with with people. You can uh, and 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 it. Of course, it puts the focus on the other and their problems. That's the main thing. Of course, that's happening. But it's. Uh, but yeah, I think that. Um, 
I think that talking about um, it's hard for me because for the obvious thing is what we've been talking about, you know, that um, I, I think that we could use being more open to and more um, we recognize more clearly the work of grace in our lives so that we can talk about that. Um, so we can say, um, we can talk about ways in which we and our parish or our friends or our family or whatever, whatever have, have, have grown, have seen growth. And that's something that can be hard, can be hard to talk about in some ways because you don't want to seem like you're bragging. Um, but all the, you know, all the, all the credit, all the glory goes to God. And so you, I think having those kind of conversations, because when you focus only on the problems, it, it leaves you in a situation where um, the possibility of doing better is almost foreclosed because you're just, you're just wallowing. So I think giving examples of, um, and not in like a, not in like a, I don't know, um, like you're giving a presentation way, but just a natural way, talking about a a, a new um, uh, a new devotion you've you've added to your to your daily routine, or um, some uh, some some something good that's happening with your friends, or something that demonstrates that um, that grace is transformative. And that you have seen that kind of transformation because people need to, it's one thing to be told, oh, grace is self-effusive. Oh, grace <laughs> is transformative. Grace, uh, what's, what's the phrase? Uh, grace uh, heals um, um, uh, something. I, I, perfects I, the ele- nature. Perfects and elevates, yeah. <laughs> elevates and perfects. It heals, elevates, and perfects our nature. It's like, yeah, there we go. That's great. You know, that's, that's A+. Plus. It's meaningful <laughs> intellectually, but it's meaningless to almost everybody. Give an example, um, something that you've seen um, that has demonstrated that grace is, is operating in your life, in your family's life. I'm learning. Here's an example. I'm learning holiness for my seven-year-old daughter. You know, and that's something I'm learning that I just, her first communion was last week. Um, and I am just coming to see now precisely, I think, in part due to the grace of that whole event just how I am learning and will continue to learn the life of holiness from her because I was, I went through the motions as a child and my parents will tell me that I had a notion that I needed religion in my life, but I didn't know what that really meant. It was just a feeling, which was a good feeling, a supernatural feeling, but it was not, I didn't understand it. But like, you know, our daughter said and i don't bring this up i bring this up not to suggest that this is we've done anything extraordinary with her she's just a very pious child and um and like i said i'm learning from her she comes up to us like the monday after her first communion and goes i want to go to mass every day i'm like well that's great um you know church is about 20 minutes away you know and we you know it's kind of hard with all these kids but we would love we will work on trying to get you there once or twice a week and then she goes um i know where the parish in the neighborhood is i'll just walk there (laughs) And I'm like, okay, seven's a little young <laughs> to be walking by yourself, um, you know, up the Pittsburgh Hills uh, to, uh, to to church. But that kind of unselfconscious excitement about the sacrament, about Jesus. She talks about Jesus in a way that I did not talk about Jesus as a child. 
um, and that I could learn to talk about Jesus. I could learn to be more excited about the confessional. She was thrilled with the confessional. She thought it was the best thing. <laughs> um, and uh, and she wants to go back. And we're joking, like, don't don't like just kick your brother so you have to go back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but uh, talk about things you've seen in your family, in older relatives, in your children, in your friends. Talk about clear instances of growing in faith, things that you've learned. Talk about the movement of grace that you've seen, because we need to, to believe not just the formulas and the catechism. We need to believe that grace is genuinely in this moment right now in our families and neighborhoods that we can see in this moment is transforming people. Um, and, and you recognizing that and talking about it with others will help others to recognize those instances in their own lives. Because we're blind to it. We're complete. We do not live in the, the, the modern Western American church. Um, and just society generally is completely blind to the supernatural. We've been educated to be blind to it. We, 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 and, um, and we feel silly for saying like, oh, that was, you know, that was an act of grace or something. That was God, you know, that was whatever so-and-so saint or whatever you know we feel silly because it seems unscientific or whatever you know um but uh breaking free of that recognizing those instances of grace and then again giving others the confidence to recognize them in their own lives i think that's that's a way of of bringing things back to, to positive without being without just being kind of artificial you know, yeah. it was that artificial way. It was like, oh, the gates of hell will prevail, blah, 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 blah. Let me cite, you know, so-and-so. And it's very fake and nobody, and I was like, I know. It just, it's hard. It's hard. It can be hard to believe these things. And you you just keep telling me them isn't going to make a difference. Uh, you can be told a million times. And if you don't feel in your bones, based in part on living a kind of life that makes it credible that the church is, is eternal, that you can feel it, not just be convinced of it intellectually, that's important, but you can feel that, hey, I've made decisions in my life that I felt like were responsive to grace and, 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 and I'm more content than I was before, even though I gave some, even though I gave some things up for it. And, um, and my children are, are, are more content. And not that there's not problems, you know, but there's the, you can see that the claims of the the claims of the church are true in your own experience of them, and then that that more than being told a million times about the gates of hell um, makes the church's permanence credible. Well, we come back at the end to the primacy of grace, yeah. which uh, beautiful grace at the beginning. the The one prayer is uh, what is it? The grace begin uh, or or begin my actions, continue with my actions and bring them to conclusion. Yeah. Something like that, the prayer, but we're all out of time here, Brandon. Um, we, we mentioned, uh, so we got your book here, link below. You also have your other book, right? It just, yes. um, any final words, what are you working on? Uh, any final, um, anything? Um, I'm working on another book with Dr. Han, um, that, uh, um, 
that will be that'll be it'll be a follow up to It Is Right and Just in a way that I think will will actually be kind of a bridge between the work I do on my own and 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 his um, his work. So I'm I'm really excited about that. And then I will at some point be writing another book of my own on Catholic action and being political as Catholics without being in a way that in a way that is about more than just partisan politics. How do we organize our lives in a way that is political and that has an impact on the way our communities function? So, Excellent. Yeah. So Great. That's what I'm Exciting. On. Exciting. All right. Well, Brandon, thanks so much for your time. Let's offer up in our father uh, for this intention of building Catholic communities uh, for all the families who are going to watch this, that we can have the grace that God can grant us the grace and his mercy to build that community for the sake of our children and for the sake of our souls. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus is King. Oh.